in my own practice and in my teaching, I'm continually inspired by inquiry and open questions. And so one of many questions that I reflect on and practice with and ponder on a regular basis, both in my own practice and in teaching, is about compassionate action. And what are the proximate causes to compassionate action and to it maturing? You know, what leads to compassion maturing? And what leads to it not being passive but actually engaged and responsive? So one of many powerful questions in my own life and and practice these days, perhaps also in yours. And so that will be the theme for reflection this evening. And just in brief, I actually want to start at the beginning. Because when I look at these awakened qualities, whether it's compassion, whether it's the equanimity that informs compassion, whether it's joy, whether it's loving kindness, whether it's patience, wisdom, all these awakened qualities, I notice that they have both ordinary aspects and extraordinary aspects, right? That they mature. And they start as ordinary, they become extraordinary, and then we actually integrate the extraordinariness into manifesting in a way that is quite ordinary. It's one of many maps of practice. So for me, I started meditating when I was 17 years old. And some of you, as I see here, have been meditating for quite some time, as I have. And so you know that you started your meditation practice long before the word mindfulness became mainstream, long before anything in the regular culture was embracing it, long before Time magazine had the front cover Uh, that it had recently about mindfulness meditation. And certainly long before there was a teen subculture of folks who meditated. That was not happening when I started. It is happening now. Um, And so, uh, you know, a question that I think to myself still is, why did I start doing that? If it wasn't in the foreground of the culture It certainly wasn't cool for my age bracket. Why did I start doing that? And a simple answer to that question would actually be suffering. There's a tremendous amount of suffering at that young period of time, uh, actually physically, uh, as well as emotionally, as well as just the pain of the world, which touched me quite deeply. But what I see is that the ordinary roots of compassion and the equanimity that supports compassion that led me to have a response like this to suffering was already there. And I bet in a lot of us you can remember back to childhood simple circumstances where it was already there. So I'll tell you a couple of stories from mine and you can reflect on a couple of stories from yours. When I was in grade school, have these memories, kind of these chronological memories, of kind of the same event happening over and over again. And the event looks something like this. I'd be out on the playground. It was recess, having a good time. I loved handball, for example. Bounce the ball up against the wall. I loved that. Somebody would get hurt. And no matter what I was doing, no matter how engaged I was, no matter how much fun I was having, no matter if I was winning or losing, I would just stop. 
and go over to that kid and help them and get to them to the office and get some adult to take care of them. You know? Nobody told me that I should be doing that. It was just an impulse that I had you know, in grade school. Then I think about how this quality of equanimity really supports a mature, caring heart of compassion in the midst of pain. And I think of another grade school memory. I was about eight years old. And, you know, maybe this happened to you or somebody that you know. I was getting teased. In fact, in this day and age, we'd probably call it um, being bullied. That word really wasn't around back then. But I was getting chronically teased. I had glasses, you know. It doesn't take much when you're a certain age. And so I was being teased, and it really hurt. And I was, you know, I kind of was like a sensitive personality type of child. It really hurt. And, you know, I tried to be tough, and I tried to suck it up, and I tried to ignore it, and I tried, and I tried, and I tried, and it was just all struggle. Well, this one day, I had an insight that changed my relationship with my peers, actually, for the rest of my kind of growing up period of time. The insight was really simple. It sounded like this. Oh, they're mean because they're hurting. They're mean because they're hurting. And I just got it. And that's a voice of equanimity that says, ah, you know, it's not about the reactivity. It's not about the pain. Of course, it's about the pain. There was a lot of compassion as well. But it's actually about understanding causes and conditions. They're hurting, so they're causing hurting, and now I'm hurting. And am I going to keep throwing that ball? If you keep throwing that ball of pain? So a couple of really simple, ordinary examples of how these awakened qualities, whether it's compassion or the equanimity that supports it, start to manifest and start to grow and then start to enact change. Okay. Whether it was the change of all of a sudden I wasn't buying the bullying, which of course changed the entire dynamic. It actually mostly disappeared after a period of time that felt endless at that young age, but it did change or whether it's a much larger, larger context. So I want to offer a short teaching on compassion and on equanimity to begin with, and then really talk about how to bring this into our lives, into our action. So compassion and the supporting role of equanimity. Definition of compassion... Compassion is the caring heart which quivers in response to pain. Having been touched by this pain, the wish to respond appropriately to relieve the pain arises. This is the great compassion. So then we need to talk about the near misses and the far misses. Because compassion sounds like a noun when in fact it's a verb. Same with equanimity. Same with most of these qualities actually. So there's a few near misses that we're all quite familiar with. One near miss of compassion is pity. Now, pity has caring, but it's a little confused. It's confused because it says, I feel sorry for you. As if, you know, I can insulate myself from pain by being sorry for you. I'm so sorry. So it's a near miss. It has the caring, but a near miss. Another near miss is this quality of codependence. 
Vincent, it's the opposite of the insulating and separating out. It's actually become enmeshed. It's, you're in pain, I care so much, I'm in desperate pain too. When in fact our day is fine. But the pain gets so, so infused and embedded in our experience that we drowned. So again, a near miss. Then there's the far misses. The far misses would include not caring at all. The defendedness, the defiance, and also the numbness. Because sometimes when the pain is too great in here, out here, or in the world, uh, we go numb. It's a defense. It's actually a defense that bursts out of caring. We care to protect this fragile being, and so we get numb. But it's the opposite. It's the opposite. So then we have the equanimity that supports compassion and action. And a lot of people will ask, what is equanimity? It's a word we're all familiar with, but what does it really mean? So I have a working definition of equanimity. It has five basic aspects. That equanimity is the balance of a non-reactive mind and heart rooted in caring, rooted in wisdom, sorry, which supports a deep caring and leads to an appropriate response. Okay, so I'll say it again. Balance, non-reactive, rooted in wisdom, it supports a deep caring, and it leads to an appropriate response. We put all those together, we've got equanimity. Because there's a lot of confusion about equanimity. A near miss for equanimity would be this quality of indifference. Okay. So that's equanimity minus the caring. You know, it's non-reactive, Could, maybe it's balanced. Could even have an appropriate response, it's possible. But the caring's not there. Caring's not there. And then another near miss is passivity. Uh, really common misunderstanding of equanimity is that it's passive. That means, oh, I'm non-reactive, so I'm not going to do anything. When in fact, when we decrease reactivity, then we can gather all of our energy and internal resource to be more and more and more engaged, not less. And then the far misses of equanimity are over-attachment and over-involvement. We get glued together. The outcome makes us happy. The outcome doesn't make us happy. And when we don't get the outcome that we want, we're upset. Far misses. So I want to share with you a story about an activist that I've been following in the last year or so. I'm sure some of you have been following her a lot longer uh, than that. But her name is uh, Celia Elworthy. You know Celia? Celia Elworthy. Three-time Nobel Peace Prize runner-up. Oops, that's probably why she's not a, not a household name. So maybe the fourth time she'll get it. Uh, there's an amazing story about her. She's British. When she was 13 years old, so again... Her story is the manifestation of compassionate action on an extraordinary level, but it started from ordinary roots. And this, to me, is what's important. When she was 13 years old, she was sitting in front of her TV in Great Britain, and the Soviet tanks began to roll into Budapest. And 
Her response to that was she got up, she left the television, and she went in her room. Her mother followed her into her room a little while later and looked with astonishment as Celia was packing her bags. Her mother said, what are you doing? And Celia said, there is something terribly wrong going on. I'm going to Budapest. And her mother said, wait, you can't go to Budapest. You're 13 years old. She said, they're doing something awful and I have to go. So the way that I imagine her story was that she patiently waited until she was 18 years old. And whatever the current crisis on a global scale was, she went. In 1982, she founded the Oxford Research Group, which is a think tank devoted to developing effective dialogue between nuclear weapons policymakers and their critics. Okay? Two disparate groups that need compassionate listening and compassionate action together. In 2002, she founded Peace Direct, which, which supports local action against conflict. And in 2005, she helped set up the Elders Initiative, um, which is a group of elders looking at global issues um, and elders worldwide. Yeah. So when she first came onto my radar screen again, I had heard her name here and there, but it was actually through a TED Talk. Now, here's a little secret about TED Talks. Maybe it's just that I've been practicing these traditions for a really, really long time, and I've heard thousands and thousands of Dharma talks. At some point, there's only so many Dharma talks I can listen to. And so when I need a little diversity from the traditional Dharma talk, I go into TED. And I keep on the lookout for where is the Dharma? You know, where can I translate what is being presented, life-changing, world-changing ideas? And how can I translate the language into something that I understand from my own spiritual tradition? And where are the bridges? This is something I'm really passionate about. And so she gave this wise and soulful talk on TED, and she made six points about how to basically um, cultivate aspects that lead to compassionate action. And I want to weave those directly with the Dharma uh, to honor her and to also honor our community here in Berkeley. There's so much direct and indirect action happening here. Thank you for what you're doing on the streets and in your families and in your work and nationally and internationally. So in a way, this is a, my thank you to you as a community. Six points. Number one, commitment to nonviolence. Number two, mind power through meditation. Three, working with fear. Four, courage. Five, using anger as a fuel to keep going. Six, working collectively with others. These are all aspects that we know intimately that we can be on the lookout for, that we can nurture and mature and cultivate so that we can be even more effective in allowing the wisdom to inform what we say and what we do. So we'll explore these a little bit, starting with commitment to nonviolence. This whole tradition is grounded in the aspect of basic integrity, in ethical training, 
and the basic ethical training, of course, being the five precepts of non-harming. And so for the purpose of training, in practice, we engage in not taking life, not taking that which isn't offered to us, and being wise and careful with our sexuality, our speech, and our use of intoxicants of all forms. And we don't take these on as commandments. We take them on as invitations to allow our basic integrity and our commitment to non-harming and non-violence to shine forth uh, in very ordinary ways that build up over time. Sometimes when I'm leading a retreat, and at the beginning of the retreat we will take formally these five precepts of non-harming, when I lead them I always start each one with this phrase. And the phrase is, knowing how deeply our lives intertwine. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I undertake the training to not take life. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I undertake the training to not take what isn't offered to me. Etc., etc. Why? Because it's remembering that we're not doing it to become perfect people. There's perfection in the imperfection, and we're never going to get the perfection that we're looking for. And if we did for a nanosecond, it would then change. Oops. So, knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we take it on because we realize we're influencing each other, we're supporting each other through our action in these ways. So here's a quote that ties back into the kind of youthful, ordinary wisdom that's already there again. And it's from our beloved Joan Baez, local singer, activist, Dharma practitioner at Spirit Rock. She says, The foundation of my beliefs is the same as it was when I was 10. Nonviolence. It's like sometimes we have these seeds in us and we have to go around and do this whole cycle of living life before we come back to them. It's never too late. So that's the first principle, commitment to nonviolence. So the second principle, uh, mind power through meditation. And to me this is really about how the basic integrity meets the rest of the path. So we start with basic integrity, and then we develop these practices of meditation, uh, the samadhi basket, the meditation basket. And then through doing that, the wisdom basket flowers with something new. Uh, It's why we take a Thursday evening and come here and sit quietly and watch our breath when we know, we know that the world's hurting out there. And it's so easy to have the thought, shouldn't I be doing something? Shouldn't I be doing something rather than just sitting here? I think we need both. I think we need to learn how to sit in the simplicity of things so that when things get really, really complicated, we can bring that simplicity to bear. Whether it's that big war in our own family and the words are flying and the body language is screaming and you know, it's just feeling terrible and how many times have we done this in our family system? And then we bring that simplicity of a single breath into bear or a moment of feeling our feet or tapping in with our heart 
or on a much wider scale. We meet somebody on the street and they're suffering and there's a lot of chaos going on. And how do we actually meet that chaos? How do we work with the groups that we're working with? The wisdom informs us. The mind power through meditation. Uh, The power is the wisdom. So then we have one of my favorites, number three, which is working with fear. Fear is my dear, dear friend. But fear was not always my dear, dear friend. Fear used to be my nemesis. It used to be what froze me, what stopped me from speaking the truth, from seeking justice, to being in my own body. But this third principle of working with fear, Scylla calls it the 3 a.m. syndrome. And she talks about waking up in the middle of the night, just bolt upright in terror. Sometimes we do it because of a bad dream. Sometimes we do it because there's just so much percolating behind the scenes in the mind that it's just, you know, the whole system pops to the surface right in the middle of the night. And sometimes it's because something's happened that is genuinely terrifying to us or to someone that we've loved. So she calls it the 3 a.m. syndrome. And here's her advice. She says, sit it beside you like a child. Have a talk with it. Make a plan and stick to it. Lots of dharma there. So we sit it beside ourselves like a child. Uh, This is the piece about kindness and patience. And it's a practice, I can't even remember where I picked it up, but I remember somebody once saying to me, sit fear down on a park bench next to you and just have a conversation. Be friendly, be patient, be willing. So I've been doing that for many, many years, just as she says. Having a talk with it is bearing witness. We listen to it, we feel into it. I can't think of better training to be in the presence of somebody who's highly reactive. And if we've listened to our own fear deep enough, long enough, we can keep our balance of equanimity. We can bring down the reactivity. We can allow the caring and the wisdom to shine into the foreground. And the intuition will come of the appropriate response that is so different than our shoulds, right? So we sit it beside us like a child. We could have a talk with it Then she says, make a plan, which I view as setting intention. The power of the mind, again, we set our intention and stick to it. Letting the power of the mind lead. The beautiful thing about intentions is we're not in charge. So we can care, we can have that sudden inspiration, the intention can arise, but how it manifests, where, when, we're not in charge but we can stick to it. We can keep following it. So we'll unpack this a little further. Bring in the kindness a little bit further. Loving kindness, of course, in our tradition is the antidote to fear. And in the story that is so often told, I think of these as Buddhist bedtime stories. So the story that's so often told about this is how there was a group of monastics they were sitting a three-month retreat during the rainy season. So it was a big deal, long retreat. The Buddha had taught them 
a practice of concentration and said, practice this for three months. Develop your concentration. They had found a place. Uh, it seemed like a really good place to meditate. You know, they, they, they found the spot. People were taking care of them. They were offering generosity of food and supplies. There were little huts. It seemed pretty friendly. But what happened, right? What they didn't know was that the area they were meditating in was inhabited by unseen beings. In the tradition called devas, our equivalent might be angels or tree spirits. So you need not believe in angels or tree spirits, but there was something unseen in the environment. And those devas wanted the practitioners out because, you know, they had just invaded their turf. You know how it is when somebody invades your turf? Even if it's just they get a little bit too close to your chair or your cushion in the meditation hall? A little response, much less, you know, coming into your house and taking something? So the devas tried to get them out. The monks got scared. They ran down to the Buddha and said, we can't practice here. It's too noisy. It's too smelly. It's too scary. It's just not right. And the Buddha said, no, 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 no. This is the perfect place to practice. Here you've got all this fear. I've got the practice for you to work with this fear, loving kindness. So he taught them loving kindness, sent them back up the hill into the mountains. Here's the key in terms of this evening's teaching. They started practicing loving kindness for concentration. And out of that practice, the devas actually became their allies. The devas stopped interfering with their environment and stopped interfering with their practice and became their allies. This is such a powerful story about how we engage in social action in the world. And I'll give you a really, really simple example of it from my home community of Mountain Stream. Our meditation center at Mountain Stream has only been open for a year and a month, even though our organization has been alive and well for more than 25 years. We were gifted by a number of people of donations to buy a single-family home outright. And then we were gifted by many other donations of time and expertise to transform that single-family home into a meditation center. It took a couple of years, but there was a problem. We had found the house. The donations were there. We had bought the house. Everything was moving forward, but we needed permits from the city. So we went in to get our permits, and it turned out that some of the neighbors were not so happy to have a meditation center in their neighborhood. Um, They had um, long-term connection with that home and the families that had raised their children in that home, and they wanted to see that home continue to be used to raise families, to have that kind of community atmosphere. So there's no judgment. They were used to a certain type of community atmosphere, and this was out of the norm. Okay? And so we started having meetings with the city, and some of these neighbors would come and, and, uh, and bring their friends, and, you know, we don't want this meditation center. And I was like, whoa, you know, we just paid for this thing outright. Like, if we don't have a meditation center, what are we going to do? Right? Stressful practice of patience. And so we'd go to these meetings, And the neighbors would sit on one side, and we would sit on the other. And there'd be a group of us that would sit in front that were going to present and report. 
And there will be a group of Mountain Stream community members in the back who were practicing loving kindness. And we did that every meeting. Meeting after meeting after meeting. Being so careful to really listen to what the neighbors had to say. To show respect. To understand that there was something bigger going on than our agenda and plan. And to keep letting that meta flow. I don't see that as different than what some of the reconciliation processes happen between countries and deep listening. It's just a much wider scale. And so when we can see our obstacles, whether they're people, whether they're groups, whether they're ourselves, that it'd be so easy to be fearful about and shut down around, when we can see them as our allies, things change. Something else is possible. I'll share one more story on the topic of fear. Again, a classic story from the tradition. Story of Mara. So who's Mara, right? Mara in the Buddhist canon is kind of the... mm, that which interferes, our, our nemesis... Sometimes it's that voice in our ear that goes, not good enough, or you know, some impulse that makes us get up off our seat and not engage our practice, or not fully bring our practice into our lives. You know, just let the distractions take their predominance. That's all manifestations of Mara. And so in the story of the Buddha, Mara, the night of the enlightenment of the Buddha, came and visited and definitely engaged the Buddha to be in wanting, in fear, in doubt, in everything that might inhibit full awakening. And of course, as the story goes, at the pivotal point, Siddhartha puts his hand upon the earth and says, you know, the earth is my witness. I'm not letting Mara run this show. The earth is my witness to my capacity and birthright to wake up right now and be free. Here's the part of the story I really love. I love the fact that Mara continued visiting the Buddha after the Buddha's awakening. I find that incredibly reassuring, to be honest. So one of my favorite stories about this is told by Thich Nhat Hanh. And it's the story of the Buddha is fully awake, right? And Mara comes to visit. And Ananda, his cousin, uh, functioned in the role of attendant. So Ananda tried to stop Mara. Now you can hold Mara in this case um, literally or metaphorically or both. It doesn't really matter. But Ananda tried to stop Mara and say, no, Mara, go away. The Buddha is busy. The Buddha's enlightened. What are you doing here? You know. And uh, the Buddha heard this. And he said, you know, Ananda, who's out there? Who's out there? Oh, nobody, nobody. Who's out there? It's Mara. Oh, invite Mara in. Are you sure? Yes. So Mara comes in and acts perfectly like Mara and says to the Buddha, you know, who do you think you are to be doing all this compassionate action? Do you really think you're fully enlightened? And nee, 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 that voice. And the Buddha says, oh, yeah, Mara, you know, have a seat. Let's have some tea, right? And so they sit down to have tea. And Mara's giving the Buddha a hard time and saying, you know, why did you treat this one that way? And why did you say that to the other one? And, and, and the Buddha just says, oh yeah, Mara, tell me more. Tell, I really want to hear what you have to say. Here, um, have a cookie. You know? 
eats it more, has a cookie. He's still talking. And at some point, the witness is so strong that Mara starts to transform. Uh, And the transformation looks like this. Mara turns to the Buddha and says, you know, it's not really so easy being a Mara. Nobody likes me. Everybody tries to send me away just like, you know, Ananda did. And it's, it's just difficult. I feel kind of isolated. And the Buddha just nods and goes, yeah, yeah, I hear you. I understand. You know, actually, it's not so easy being a Buddha either. People are always challenging me. And, you know, my own family member tried to kill me. And, you know, I'm asked to prevent wars. And sometimes I can't prevent them. And it's not so easy being a Buddha either. And I just imagine them sitting there, sipping their tea and nodding. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like this is the kind of transformation that can happen when we're working with fear and also when we're working with anger or reactivity. So now I need to talk about um, Scylla's fourth point, which is the importance of courage. Definition of courage, the mental or moral strength to venture, to persevere, and to withstand danger, fear, or difficulty. Uh, and of course, the word courage, one of the roots of the word courage is heart. It's, it's full of heart. So this is from Eleanor Roosevelt. You gain strength, courage, and confidence by every experience in which you really stop to look fear in the face. You're able to say to yourself, I lived through this horror. I can take the next thing that comes along. That's courage. Uh, Another quote by uh, the young adult fiction writer, Lauren Oliver. So this is from her book, Delirium. It's quite interesting. She says, you can build walls all the way to the sky, and I will find a way to fly above them. You can try to pin me down with a hundred thousand arms, but I will find a way to resist. And there are so many of us out there, more than you think. People who refuse to stop believing. People who refuse to come to earth. People who love in a world without walls. People who love into hate, into refusal, against hope, and without fear. She says, I love you. Remember they cannot take it. That is the, the courage that's behind nonviolent action. It's like, I love you. Remember, they cannot take it. The rigidity starts to dissolve. I'm, you know, it's like I'm feeling the image of my own body in my own body in this moment of um, Gandhi and his community at the salt flats and those waves of human bodies meeting the beatings so that the salt could be made, you know. With love, remember, they cannot take it. Courage. It's courage. It's courage when we meet our own fear head on and don't avoid it, resist it, or need to change it. It's courage when we meet it in the world. So next we have working with anger. And this one interests me because in our tradition, it's not uncommon to kind of have um, 
an idea or a relationship with anger of it shouldn't be that way. You know, if I'm a good meditator, I shouldn't get mad. Well, I mean, that just leaves out a whole part of our humanity, right? Um, so how do we actually engage it in our practice? Very important question. Celia says that we use anger as a fuel to keep going. She says, it's okay to be angry at things, nukes, for example, but not people, for example, not the people who made them. She says, it's totally not productive to be angry at the people who made the nukes. So how do we use anger as a fuel to keep going? Uh, Firstly, the equanimity that understands that anger arises due to causes and conditions. We didn't necessarily wake up in the morning uh, with the strong intention to be very, very angry all day, right? I mean, maybe, maybe we've had that happen at some point in our life, but usually not. Some trigger arises, and there comes the reaction. I'm pissed. So the importance of mindfulness in the field, the bigger field that understands causes and conditions, and then we have that moment of mindfulness that goes, ah, there's a trigger. I recognize that the likelihood for anger to arise here is 90%. I'm going to pay attention. And finding those strategies to pause, to prevent the acting out, so that we can be with the anger energy in its essence instead of in its explosion. So the body is a really, really important resource here. And it has to be simple because anger is strong. It can come up quickly. We need simple tools for a moment of duress like this. Here's a few that I use. You can think of which ones you use. Taking a breath before I say something, before I say anything. Feeling my feet on the ground. If I'm walking into a conversation where it's likely that reactivity is going to be really high on any level, I will deliberately feel my feet on the ground as I'm walking into the room to have the conversation, grounded in advance. And then another simple tool is actually using the eyes and really looking around to see each other. Because if the trigger for the anger is a person, we get really tunnel visioned and we can't even see them anymore sometimes because what's in the foreground is the rage, not actually the presence of another that we might want to be connected with. Underneath it all, this deep longing for connection so that we can use the eyes and really see who we are about to yell at, who we are about to ignore because we're feeling resentful towards them, who we are about to individually or collectively. I also find using a sense of humor really, really important with anger. And in a part, it's a response to some early conditioning that I had in these communities that I really did believe that anger was, um, you know, not okay if I was going to be a meditator. That it was totally inappropriate, and that I somehow had to, like, cut it out of myself, you know, give myself an anger lobotomy or something. And the only result of that was spiritual bypass, So what is spiritual bypass? It's when we have these spiritual ideals and uh, we create a reality out of them that isn't authentic or realistic. So it can include not getting our basic needs met because, you know, we think that's not appropriate or leaving some sort of emotional content out. Uh, We're bypassing because we care so much about our spirituality 
and about waking up, that we're willing to other things. But if we're willing to other things in here, then how are we going to not other things outside? We other other people, we other other groups, we other ourselves. So we start at home and stop othering. And then we look out with our eyes and go, oh yeah, I know how painful that is when I do it to myself, so may I not do it to someone else or another group. So what I would do was bring in a sense of humor when the anger would come up and I'd feel that othering arising and I'd go, I sort of smile to myself because of course when the mouth smiles, uh, the whole mind state changes because it's all connected, the mind and the body. And I sort of smile to myself and I go, ah, pissed again, are you? I just kind of chuckle a little bit, a little sarcasm sometimes was great. Just to create a little bit of space to allow the full engagement with the energy which is different than the object. So let's talk a little bit about that. When we unglue from the object of the anger, whatever the object is, then there's all this aliveness available. And I think this is what Celia was talking about when she says use anger as a fuel to keep going. If we unglue from the object of the anger, then the reactivity diminishes. It's the glue that keeps the reactivity high. It diminishes, and then there's all this energy to really, really act in the world. You know? And let the wisdom come to the foreground so it's more skillful. I, in 2010, I, was, uh, I studied and practiced for six months in India, and many, many teachers, you know, really... Uh, such a privilege to, to have those opportunities. But remember this one teacher talking about uh, anger and compassion. So it's uh, Geshe Tupton. I studied with him a little bit. And he says, There is no such thing as compassionate anger, but there is compassionate wrath. Yeah. Can you feel the difference? Yeah. The compassionate, the compassionate anger, well, the non-compassionate anger, anger is the reactivity. The wrath is actually wisdom in the foreground and saying, no, with full embodied presence, knowing that it's the most skillful thing we can come up with. In the Tibetan tradition, there's a whole um, group of wrathful deities, wrathful awakened ones, uh, full of compassion, that are, you know, doing the hard work, as are we, as are we. Or I think about His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who, um, who I was also around uh, some at his home temple in Dharamsala during that time, and his famous phrase, my good friend, the enemy. We've heard that so many times that it starts to lose its meaning. But if we really land in it, my good friend, the enemy, That's a powerful statement. I'm so glad that he's here this weekend. How many of you are going to go see him this weekend? I'm just curious. Oh, good. So you're going to bring his blessing back next Thursday night. Yeah. It's a real privilege that he's still traveling the globe, sharing his message. So this is from Celia. She says, anger is like gasoline. If you spray it around and somebody lights a match, you've got an inferno. But if we can put our anger inside an engine, it can drive us forward. 
So the last quality is working collectively with others. This is the spirit that we don't do it alone. The suffering in the world is too big for any one of us to hold or bear alone. We do it together. So this interdependence helps prevent compassion fatigue, helps prevent isolation. And again, I'm thinking about Thich Nhat Hanh. And he talks about how the next Buddha to be, if you happen to believe that there are a series of awakened ones, uh, the next Buddha to be uh, is supposed to be the Buddha Maitreya. Maitreya is the Sanskrit for metta or loving kindness. So the next Buddha, the Buddha of loving kindness. And Thich Nhat Hanh believes that this Buddha of loving kindness isn't going to be an individual. It's going to be a collective And I I reflect on that without needing to understand what it means. And I keep my eye out for those collectives today. I don't need to wait for the next Buddha. Silla says, the locals usually know best what's needed and often put their lives on the line to do it. This is the relationship between wisdom and caring. Knowing best what's needed and putting our lives or our hearts on the line to do it. That's it, working collectively with others, not needing to know all the answers ourselves. And of course, when we gather together, uh, our good deeds are contagious. And so I went, I, I do this from time to time. I go on the website for random acts of kindness and just see, what's going on to be inspired in my own service in the world, but also because I understand that there is a collective thing going on uh, and to use the technology in a skillful way as well as all the distracted ways that we use it for, right? So I thought I would share with you a a few of them just to re-inspire you. Organize a carpool. Discover and reduce your carbon footprint. Donate money from your professional service to charity and tell your clients that you're doing this. Plant a garden. This one's very important right now. Take shorter showers. Teach someone who needs to learn another language. I love this one. Complain less. It's an act of kindness. Stay on the trail. Stop negative conversations. Be grateful. And this is from Mr. I, who's a music educator. One simple act of kindness can prevent several acts of violence. We know it's true. Some of us have experienced it directly. A simple act of kindness can prevent several acts of violence. So really having gratitude in your compassionate action, internally, externally, globally, and such a you know, bow of respect to this community. Um, you know, Berkeley is one of the places on the planet where there's so much power of this understanding and of its manifestation in the world that it has impacted the world. It's a powerful spot we're sitting on here. And I'm much more aware of it now that I don't live in the Bay Area anymore. So, 
I thought I would end with one of my favorite gratitude poems. It's by W.S. Merwin. It's called We Say Thank You. Listen, with the night falling, we are saying thank you. We are stopping on the bridge to bow from the railings. We are running out of the glass rooms with our mouths full of food to look at the sky and say thank you. We are standing by the water looking out in different directions. Back from a series of hospitals, back from a mugging, after funerals, we are saying thank you. After the news of the dead, whether or not we knew them, we are saying thank you. In a culture up to its chin in shame, living in the stench it is chosen, we are saying thank you. Over telephones, we are saying thank you. In doorways and in the backs of cars and in elevators, remembering wars and the police at the back door, and the beatings on the stairs, we are saying thank you. In the banks that use us, we are saying thank you. With the crooks in office, with the rich and fashionable, unchanged, we go on saying thank you, thank you. With the animals dying around us, with our lost feelings, we are saying thank you. With the forest falling faster than the minutes of our lives, we are saying thank you. With the words going out like cells of a brain, with the cities growing over us like the earth, We are saying thank you faster and faster with nobody listening. We are saying thank you. We are saying thank you and waving. Dark though it is. So that is what I have to offer for your reflection. Thank you for the kindness of your attention. And instead of taking questions, I just want to have a few moments to really gather our compassion and our intentions and our merit of this practice so that it moves in ever-widening circles more and more powerfully out into the world. So we can just take a moment to shut our eyes. And when I say I offer this for reflection, I mean it. Because we all carry so much wisdom and experience in us. And so I think of the talks as muses to remind us of what we already know. And so you might take a moment and reflect upon how you work with fear. And gather your courage. And come out of isolation and work with others. And transform anger develop the power of the mind, practice nonviolence.
And then I would love it if a few of us could summon up a big, loud voice so that everyone could hear them and just say a phrase of how you manifest compassionate action in yourself, your families or friends in the world. How does it manifest through you? Anybody got a big voice and can say it out loud? Mess. Yeah. Messiness. Yes. What else? Just call them out. Knowing your suffering. Taking care of clients. Yeah, being as helpful as we can. Mm, Singing praises to others. And so the ones we named and the ones we didn't name out loud, but we know them in this heart. Seeing if there's any particular intention that wants to arise moving forward in our compassionate, equanimous manifestations. Wishing ourselves well. And then gathering up our intentions, the beautiful qualities of our practice, our well-wishing, and sending them out on the wings of our intentions, taking great delight that this well-wishing, these helpful qualities will manifest in future words and in future actions And they need not know the gift that's being given. May all beings experience happiness and the causes of happiness. May all beings experience peace and the causes for peace. May all beings experience freedom in every needed form at this time and be supported by the conditions for that freedom to grow and grow, and grow.
May it be so. Thank you for your practice this evening. Wonderful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.